0: Welcome to the Epigenetics Podcast from Active Motif. Join host Dr. Stefan Dillinger for lively discussions with leading epigenetics researchers. Hear about their past experiments, what they're working on now, and what's coming next. You know their papers, now get to know them and discover the stories behind the science.
1: Hello, and welcome to this episode of the Epigenetics Podcast. Today I'm happy to welcome Ali Latifat from Northwestern University on this show. Please let me briefly introduce you to our audience. Um, You got your PhD in 1994 from the University of Oklahoma School of Medicine. You then moved on to do a postdoc at the Oklahoma Medical Research Foundation. Um, You then became Assistant Professor of Biochemistry at St. Louis University School of Medicine, where you worked your way up to become Professor of Biochemistry. You then became investigator at the Star Wars Institute for Medical Research. And since 2014, you are at Northwestern University School of Medicine, where you currently are chairman and Robert Francis Fergert professor, professor of pediatrics and director of the recently funded Simpson Query Center for Epigenetics. A question I like to ask every guest to start off our little podcast is, how did you become interested in biology in the first place and then in pursuing a career in science?
2: So thank you. Thank you so much for... uh including me in this great podcast i uh so the history of my interest in science I started very early my grandfather was a physician scientist he was a radiologist by uh, by practice and he was a physicist by uh, as a scientist and so he did a lot of radiation physics and uh, basically uh, radiology so i got involved with him at very early ages of three to five so i remember growing up boys my age uh, in iran was very popular to go out there in the street and play soccer. This is like a little plastic ball. I never really played soccer with bricks as the goal. And I never did that. I never liked it. I, I always wanted to be in the lab. I love the smell of the lab. I love the smell of experimentation. And I spent a lot of time with his clinic. So, and him and I had a lot of conversation about his science. So I think at very early age, I fell in love with experiments. I fell in love with uh with what he did and, you know, he really inspired me to get into science. So when I uh, started college, I uh, thought I wanted to be a chemist. So I got a degree in organic chemistry, synthetic organic chemistry, not reactions and uh, and, um, you know, from then I moved on to biochemistry, really fell in love with biochemistry. Learned quite a bit of enzymology, protein purification, NMR spectroscopy. My PhD was more of into the instrumentational uh, chemistry, NMR spectroscopy, mass spectrometry, and moved on to carbohydrate analysis. It was a collaboration between uh, my group at the University of Georgia. Rick Cummings was the the PI, and Bill Hasseltine at Harvard. And this is at the time that they were trying to discover the structure of the glycoproteins of the GP120 and GP160, which is the precursor for 120 and 41. So I spent a lot of time basically looking at the MULT3, MULT4 HIV infected cells and looking at the carbohydrate structure by serial lectin affinity chromatography and by mass spectrometry and NMR spectroscopy. And actually I discovered a technique at that time, we called it condensational mass spect- the condensational mass spectrometry yet, or condensational gas chromatography where we collected the radioactive gas off the end of the uh, glass column of the gas chromatographer and by retention volume we were characterizing the structure and I spent a lot of time in the lab really loved it i uh, i mean uh, i can't think of anything else to do since five and i love being in the lab so on saturdays Usually, when my most of my buddies go play golf, I'm I'm in the lab. I've been doing that for a long time, and and thing I always make a joke that is my marriage contract that Saturdays are work days because I'm good.
1: <laughs> so, with your grandfather being a scientist, you probably knew what you were going to do then, right? I mean, you yeah, knew I what mean, what
2: is minded. This is why I really enjoyed his life. He was a. Uh, and he was really ingrained into his medicine and in his research and that's that's all he did at the age of i think 75 he decided to retire and two weeks later he had a coronary bypass and basically four weeks later he went back to work because he couldn't take retirement so this this guy was married to his career and and i think what a what a pleasure to to be in love with your craft, you know, whatever your craft is, you know, it could be playing golf if you're in love with that. Fantastic. Good for you. And I think if, if a science is great for you, you should do that. So, so the question I always ask students and postdoc joining my lab, always ask them this question. If you win $300 million lottery today, what do you do tomorrow? Right. And and I ask them not to answer it to me, just answer it to themselves, because if it's not that I'm going to fund my own science and go to the lab and work 24 seven on what I want to do, then probably maybe science is not the right career. And I think that's true about every career that, you know, if you if you have all the means to do what you want to do, then you should be doing what you love. And I think uh, that's that's a great decision on a career to move into
1: they uh, coming to your career and to your science. Uh, the centers around childhood leukemia and how it can be cured using epigenetic targets. Yes. I dig- uh, I tried to dig deep and went through your publications on PubMed. And I hope we don't get lost on the journey we're about to take. <laughs> so the epigenetic target you're mostly interested in is the H- histone H3-lysine-4-methylase-Z1-compass. That's right. And if I'm not mistaken, this whole journey started in the year 2001. where your first cur- The journey you
2: started in 1996. <laughs> yeah. So the start in 1996, we, we, um, I was a postdoc at the time and, uh, me and my lab mate, a guy named Chris Brower, we used to have a blast. We would both show up to work sometimes eight, nine, 10, and we worked till like, you know, one or two in the morning. And once a week we had this tradition that we would go to the, the local taco joint and get a lot of tacos and a lot of beer and just discuss our science on life. And one of those, um, Tuesdays, it was a summer in Oklahoma, and the weather was very hot. So him and I left at 11, came back around 4, and we everybody was looking for us because we order rats, and we were preparing rat, rat liver extract for purification of some of our transcription factor. Now, at the time, I was looking at an elongation factor that was a sensitive, which turned out to be PTAF-B, which David Price purified. But but we got the extract from the rats that were stuck in the truck for about four hours at 100 and some odd degrees. And when we made the extract, I noticed a huge activity 10 fractions away from the fractions I was interested. And that fraction really interested me and I went ahead and purified it. And that turned out to be ELL. 1119 lymphoid leukemia gene with Janet Raleigh's lab showed that in translocation with MLL is involved in leukemic pathogenesis. So what we showed at that time is that ELL is a transcription elongation factor and linked elongation to leukemic pathogenesis through MLL translocation. And then I moved on in my own independent laboratory where we were interested in the MLL complex and MLL-containing complex, and we couldn't purify these from the mammalian system. So we went ahead to yeast extract, and from 300 liters of yeast extract, we purified (laughs) SET1, which is the homolog of MLL as SET1 compass, as the first histone H3K4-methylase. And we were trying to figure out why translocation of MLL to ELL and many other unknown factors always give you leukemia. And so what we learned is that ELL is an elongation factor, SET1 compass is H3K4-methylases. What are, do the rest of the complexes do? And we, through a lot of biochemistry and purification of the light, a lot of chimera from patient samples, we found out that the other partners are also in the same complex with ELL, regulating the rate of transcription elongation. And that complex we named the super elongation complex. And incidentally, a recent work that we just published last year, it turned out that super elongation complex is the main factor inside the cells that responds to heat shock so if you go back to 1996, if Chris and I would not have had that beer gathering together, and the rat sat in the in the truck for four hours at hundreds of odd degrees, there would be no heat shock. There would be no super elongation complex generating the animals. I probably wouldn't have purified ELL. So I think that's uh that's a so that's how I started in 1996 with a with a pitcher of beer and, <laughs> and a purification. A, yeah.
1: Now, what I was referring to was probably a publication that came out later. Then, um, yeah. so what? What kind of leukemia are you then interested in? What is uh, the leukemia like that you and that this comp- or this complex plays a role in?
2: Yeah, so, so as you mentioned, so you know, MLL translocations are found in leukemic pathogenesis. And that's a beautiful work that Janet Rowley showed back in the 70s, is that translocation of chromosome 11 to many other genes always give you pathogenesis of acute lymphoid or myeloid leukemia. And that's why the gene name MLL for mixed lineage leukemia. And so it was not clear why these translocation cause leukemia until we showed that the MLL compass is at H3K4-methylase, And all the partners are component of the super elongation complex. So basically, this is epigenetic misregulation and also misregulation of the elongation stage of transcription. And the kids who get these translocations, the five-year event-free survival rate for them is less than thirty percent. So out of every hundred. Kid who have these translocation, 30 of them may survive, 70 of them will not in, within five years. And that was true in the 1970s when Rowley discovered these translocations, and it's true today when we are studying these. So the goal is that trying to figure out why these translocation cause leukemias, and these are mostly pediatric leukemias. And what we are learning is that misregulation of elongation could be the process in here. And uh, beautiful work by a former graduate student in my lab, Kevin Lang, identified disruptors of these super elongation complexes. And now we are moving forward by using these disruptors in in translocation-based leukemia to see if there is a therapy there. And there are a few other pathways that, you know, others are moving on in lab. trying to figure out if elongation control pause release could be very central into that but from that grew an an area of uh, you know epigenetic therapy for us where we're looking at misregulation of chromatin remodelers chromatin modifiers chromatin regulators and how their misregulation of their activity causes cancer and how can you regulate this process so a series of studies were published early on in the in the year 2000 2010 where they showed that if you sequence the cancer genome, chromatin modifiers, chromatin regulators are top of the list for factors that are mutated in large number of cancer. And I think that's still an enigma for the field. Why is that transloc- Why is that mutations in a lot of these, what the quote unquote called epigenetic factors, I probably like to call them transcriptional regulators, why their mutations are associated with cancer. And I think that's the question that the field is trying to address. A recent study that Luanga, a former postdoctoral fellow in my lab, just published in Nature Cancer, where he showed that the mutations of the ASXL1 are associated with a large number of solid tumors and heme malignancies. And the, the dogma in the field was that the ASXL1 mutation renders this protein inactive, and basically, this is a loss of function. And Lou is a pretty smart guy, so he generated antibodies against the NNC terminal domain of ASXL1. And he showed that patient samples that they have ASXL1 mutation, actually there was a small band in the bottom of the gel that nobody saw because he generated an internal antibody that was able to see it. And he showed that this internal band or internal peptide can bind to its complex, which contains BAP1 as a histone deubicidinates, and actually hyperactivates BAP1. So hyperactivation of BAP1 results in basically increasing ubiquitination and derepression of gene expression. So we surmised that if this is true, inhibition of BAP1 catalytic activity could be cancer therapeutics. So we spent a good bit of time testing a lot of different inhibitors and identifying new class inhibitors for BAP1 and went ahead and showed that ASXL1 mutations are responsive to this. Bap one inhibition. So this is another example of you know, using enzymology, molecular biology, trying to treat some of these epigenetic related cancer. So there's a large number of cancers as a cause as a as a result of mutations within the chromatin modifiers or basically chromatin remodelers, which SNF complex. This is another factor. So Sigal Kodash's lab work on, on trying to figure out how you can regulate these thing in, in cancer. So I think uh a lot to be learned in here, and there's uh, there's so much we don't know about the process. And I think the main thing we don't know, why mutations in so many different chromatin modifiers, transcriptional regulators, is involved in pathogenesis of cancer. And that's a question that, you know, a couple of people in my lab is asking right now, and basically digging into the literature, trying to come up with some answer that allows us to, to do some of the studies. If, if I were to take a big guess in here, based on what I've read in the literature, I would tell you that the confirmation of chromatin itself could be very important. So, and that could be very epigenetic, where you have, in a, in a sense, a confirmation that two ends of DNAs are not touching each other, and basically you're silencing uh, an oncogene. Or maybe two ends of DNA are touching each other, and now you have silenced a tumor suppressor. Right. And now you change the conformation in a way that has no changes in the sequence of the DNA and not conformational changes within our chromosome allows that oncogene to get activated or the tumor suppressor to get repressed. And that may cause cancer as well. And developing technology that you can see this higher chromatin structure could be very important.
1: Yeah, that that would have been my next question now that you are, are talking about that. Is like the methods that are available is high C, micro C, um, things like that. Are these methods that are, you are using or that can be used for us? So we
2: are, we are learning how to use. So in my department, we recruited a, a superb uh, a computational biologist, experimentalist, guy named uh, Feng Yu from uh, Penn State. And Feng actually is really pushing forward in to develop this high c methodology in regards to human disease. And he's collaborating with a lot of colleagues in here to do that. And we are collaborating in his lab to use the technology for our model system. And I think understanding chromatin conformation is going to be very important. And we have high c that is developed by colleagues, but I think probably there's better methods to give you much more precise Looking at these interactions are in the making, and and hopefully those will be available to allow you to do that. But that's a method of choice right now. Uh,
1: what are the challenges in this in this area? Why is high C not not the right method right now? Is it? well I, I think it's the
2: best method right now. But you're probably going to have better methods being developed, right? Okay. okay. You know, you know how this field goes. You know, you go from. Uh, I mean, I remember I was a graduate student when uh, Rick Young and colleagues talking about development of. Uh, you know, manual chip and you're using microarrays to look at the, you know, the the pattern of gene expression in Cervicia. And here's 20 years later is now we're doing chip, chip, chip sequencing and Hi-C. And so things have evolved very nicely. When I was a graduate student, I used to uh, lay in bed at nighttime and read GATC And if a night I read about 150 of them and my wife would record the sequence in there, that was a good day. We sequenced 200 bases, right? And now with an instrument seq in my lab, we can sequence 7 billion in a day. I think things are evolving, and I, I can see that methodology for looking at the Chromatin conformations are going to develop as the as the computational biology gets more advanced, as the sequencing capability gets more advanced. There will be other techniques that allow us to give us precise look at this. But I think looking at the chromatin conformation between the normal and and cancerous cells could be very informative. Yeah.
1: So when we come back to COMPASS, so what is the effect of COMPASS on the chromatin? Is it just the methylation of the H four? Um, no H three K four, and what is then the role of compass in MLL and what makes it a good target?
0: Yeah. Uh,
2: there so, so there is, as you mentioned, there is one set one compass in Cervisia, and uh, back in the uh, early two thousand, when we we're studying, we published this thing in the basically. 2001, it was the first complex containing set one and we showed that was a K4 methylase. And the thought was that this, you know, there is a histone code, that these modification actually instruct a function. And the very sort of disappointing results that we got is that if you actually make a catalytically dead compass, which we know were the site and the cervicia, you had homologous recombination at the time, you could do that. We showed that making a point mutation and having a dead enzyme really has not much effect on gene expression. Later, we went ahead and made single point mutation in histone residues. And, and the shocking part was that we made a mutation in every single histone residues in yeast, and only a handful of them were lethal, right? So saying that if, you know, there, is a, is a, if there is a code, and if you get rid of this modification sites, this should be detrimental to the cells, and they were not. Right. So what we have learned since then is that, you know, there's really not much of a histone code when you come at least with these active marks, is that the context of the enzymes are very important. If you delete, for example, TRR, which is a related to the compass subunit is a trithorax related. So if you have set one in yeast, in drosophila, you have set one, trithorax and TRR, trithorax related. And we showed that TRR is an enzyme that modifies enhancers by H3K4 monomethylation. And work that was published by ENCODE at that time identified histone monomethylation as a major marker of enhancers. So the dogma in the line was that basically if every single enhancer from drosophila to I has K4 monomethylation, K4 monomethylation must be a central factor for enhancer function. So Ryan Rickles, a former graduate student in the lab, decided to make a single point mutation in the TRR site of Drosophila and do a complementation studies. So he deletes TRR, animal dies. He adds back TRR that is wall type, animal lives. He adds back TRR that is catalytically dead, cannot do K4 methylation. And we asked the question, what happens to an animal? I, I would have bet $100,000 that nothing will develop. Guess what? fly developed, kicked around, no problem. And there were no monomethylation or loss of major histone acetylation on these enhancers and no issues, right? So we actually submitted that for review and a couple of reviewers were very hostile. They did not like the result that, you know, this basically goes against the dogma. K4 monomethylation does everything. That's what everybody's been telling us. Why are you telling us that this doesn't do anything? This must not be right. Gladly, the editor at Nature Genetic was very smart. He, uh, he saw the value of this work and didn't listen to the reviewers and actually published this paper. And when the paper came out, the, the major question that I got is that if you make a single point mutation in a catalytic pocket of TRR, you may have 1% activity. How do you know that 1% activity doesn't result in viability, which is a very fair point. And we should have thought about it before publishing the paper, but Ryan went back and he made deletions of the entire set domain and chop and chew of the 2000 amino acid containing protein. And he showed that actually he can delete the entire set domain, the animal still develops. So it's not this 1% activity left. So he asked the question, what is the minimal domain that can put it back into the animal and the animal survive? And he identified about a 6700 amino acid domain that he can put back in the animal in lieu of having an ETR and the animal would survive. Wow, what's the function of this domain? He purified that domain from the animal and found it binds and stabilizes UTX, which is a K27 demethylase, right? So he took the same domain, went back into the mammalian system, and it says, what is the MLL34 homolog of this domain? Identify that, did the chop and chew, identify 80 amino acid domain of the 4,000, that if you put it in the MLL4 or MLL3 nolan in cells, it can bind UTX and stabilize UTX. So what we learn from this experience is that K4 monomethylation is not a major function of TRR in in development and in viability. The major function of TRR is actually stability of UTX and is a K27 demethylation. And now we are trying to figure out, could this be a way forward because large number of mutations within MLO3-4 are found in human cancer? Could loss of UTX stability is the result that you get cancer. Can you find out a domain that stabilizes UTX or a drug that stabilizes UTX? And you can go back and look at the patients who have MLO3-4 mutations. Can that happen? We have an analogous story where Luang was in the lab. He was looking at the role of MLO3 mutations in, in different forms of cancer and found out that majority of the mutations within MLO3 are landed within the PhD domain of MLO3. And he asked the question, what happens with these mutations of MLL3 in the PHD domain? And what does the PHD domain binds to? And he showed that actually, if you purify the PHD domain by itself, he can purify this BAP1-containing complex if things are happening at the level of enhancer. And the enhancers that are affected in the PHD mutation in, in breast cancer and bladder cancer and other forms of cancer are associated with enhancers of the tumor suppressors. So basically what happens, you affect the interaction of MLO3 with BAP1 on these enhancers. And with not bringing MLO3, actually you don't bring any UTX to these sites because UTX is a component of MLO3-4 compass. And if you don't bring UTX to these sites, K27 methylation takes over and shuts these enhancers off. So what Lou asks is that if this is the mechanism of cancer pathogenesis by shutting off these enhancers, can he use polycomb inhibition in these MLO3 mutations to turn these tumor suppressors on? And the answer was yes in tissue culture, and the answer was yes in the animal models of cancer he used. So luckily, we have a fantastic surgeon, uh, bladder surgeon, cancer surgeon in, in next door, a guy named Josh Meeks. And we collaborated with Josh, and we showed that a lot of this thing is working. And with Josh and our cancer center in here, actually, we wrote a phase one trial. They wrote the trial, and they are running it on um, patients who have bladder cancer as a result of ml three or ml four mutation. Can inhibition of polycomb be therapeutics? And the, the the trial is in its first year. We, we hear good things are happening. Hopefully, within the year, we think we'll think we we'll see what happens in there. But UTX, again, is a central factor in here. So from our work in Drosophila, from our work in the mammalian cells, from our work in this interaction, we think that UTX stability, UTX activity is central in here. And uh, and that's what we're trying to figure out. So I don't think, per se, and I'm in a long way of answering your question, is that I don't think that there is really a histone code with a lot of these marks is that there is context dependency of their functions. Their marks are important for modulation, fine tuning, but the context of these large proteins are very important as building block for regulation of process of transcription, and this is what we need to look at.
1: Yeah, this uh, <laughs> you answered many of my questions already, and uh, some are still open. Um, what I wanted to get at is um, so. Um, when utx um, is the important factor and this removes or uh, the um, histone methylation is then repressive marks more important than activating marks is that what you can say or, or what you um, you know i, I think it's just,
2: i mean i have four kids and if you ask me which one is more important uh, i can't answer that question they're all are important i i think repressive um, repressive marks are very important Activator remark are very important. So I think there's there is no importance to be said in here. They're functionally conserved all the way from yeast to Drosophila to human eye. So they play a very important role. But I can't I can tell you that one of them is not end-all be all. A recent story we published in Nature Genetics and uh, it was a beautiful work of a former postdoctoral fellow, Dolphin Delay. And Dolphin, what she asked the question, she said that. We knew that MLL-2, so there are four MLLs, one, two, three, four. We knew that MLL-2 from the work of the Ku in the lab is involved in marking these bivalent clusters. And for lack of a better word, bivalent clusters are homeotic clusters. These are developmentally regulated genes. These are domains that they have K4 and K27 mark on them, so both active and repressory mark on them. And there was a big hoopla in the field that this bivalence could be central for regulation of gene expression. And what we showed that if you get rid of the K4 methylation, really not much happens to these bivalent domains. So they don't get less repressed or more activated if you get rid of the K27 methylation. And the question was that, what's the difference between the mark, histone mark on these sites, versus the context of the enzyme, right? So Dolphin asked the question, what happens if I get rid of MLL2? and she identifies series of genes that they are basically silenced, right? So MLL2 context, it was very important for the regulation of these genes. She picked up some of these genes and landed a reporter in front of them. Normal condition, reporter is expressed. You get rid of MLL2, reporter is silenced. So she asked the question, if I delete MLL2, the reporter is silenced. What gene can I delete in the mammalian cell that the reporter is not activated. So she comes from the yeast background and this sort of a questioning and looking at the pattern of gene expression by screening was very common in yeast. So she did that a screen in the mammalian cells. And lo and behold, she showed that if you get rid of MLL2, loss of polycomb or DNA methylation results in the repression of these guys. So in a sense that MLL2 comes and sits on these sites and polycomb and DNA methylases are repelled when you get rid of MLL two, Polycomb and MLL two can come and basically silence these sites, right? So basically, you go from an active gene to a silent state by Polycomb and and uh, and trithorax, and Polycomb and DNA methylation come to site. So she asked a second question: If I don't have MLL two, the gene is silenced. If I the gene is expressed, I'm sorry. If I now add Polycomb and uh, and uh, DNA methylation, they come to the site and silence this site. What happens if I don't have MLL2 and delete polycomb? All those genes got activated in the absence of K4 methylation, right? So basically, we got the paper and basically was gene expression in the absence of K4 methylation. And the cover of Nature Genetic for that issue was that transcription without H3K4 methylation, right, And that was a heresy, because from yeast all the way to human, every time you have transcription, you have H3K4 methylation. And we showed that if you get rid of the H3K4 methylation machinery, if you get rid of the polycomb and repressory machinery, you can express genes without having K4 methylation. And the conclusion of that work was that repression is the modus operandi for the regulation. And the function of trithorax is not to bring K4 methylation, and activate those sites. But the function of trithorax is to repel the repressory machinery. So I think this is another long way of answering your question, which one is important. They both are, but probably the repression is the modus operandi. You silence everything until you bring trithorax or set one compass or TRR to those sites to repel the repressory machinery and you activate. And the marks themselves probably are not that important, at least in the case of mll 2 but there are other, other areas that marks could be very important. And there's a story that we have uh, with Salva and Ed group in Spain, where his group beautifully have shown that the K4 methylation implemented by SET1A compass is central to metastasis, right? What is the mechanism of the process is not clear yet, but here's an example that the K4 methylation seems to be doing something in the process of Gene expression and regulation of cancer.
1: Okay, <laughs> and that's a very long uh, answer to my question. But um, you already shared with us that, that you are, um, um, yeah, in this uh, clinical study. But why? Are you, what are you working on right now in the lab? And what are your plans for, let's say, the next five years?
2: I think our we we just recently wrote a review. Mark Morgan in the lab wrote a review called "Reevaluating." basically this process of histone modification and what they do. And our conclusion is that from our work from trithorax one, that the context of these enzymes are very important. And the question that we would like to address, what is important about the context? What is the protein structure doing inside the cells to be involved in regulate gene expression? So I think within the next five years, we want to define, at least for compass family, the non-catalytic function of these six compass, set 1A, set 1B, MLR 1, 2, 3, and 4. i give you an example. This is what excites us. Uh, Lu Wang published a paper a while back. We could not make sense out of this paper, right? So he showed that of the compass family members, set 1B is mostly cytoplasmic. Why would you want to have a, a, a compass in the cytoplasm? So he showed beautifully that maybe be involved in some of this process of uh, metabolism and, and uh, breast cancer development. And we published a paper, but still we could not understand it that well. Paper just came out in nature genetics, and they found that under hypoxic condition, cytoplasmic set one B goes into the nucleus and does his business. Right? Wow right? Somebody gave us the clue now. Hypoxia could be very central for this translocation from cytoplasm into nucleus to regulate the pattern of gene expression. And if that's true, can you inhibit set one b under hypoxic condition? Because this is major venue to treatment of many diseases that are caused as a result of hypoxia. Cancer is one of them, neurological disorder is another is SET1B compass playing a role in this process? Is movement of SET1B from cytoplasm into the nucleus important for the process? That's we'd like to figure that out and to learn. We didn't know much about it, but this beautiful work yeah. published in there and gave us a clue. And I think this is a beauty of science. You you have a building block in here, and somebody else put another building block, and then you just put those together and build a, a, a greater structure. And I think that's. The value of science is that to have building blocks that others can build upon.
1: So when you talk about structure, structure of Crobatin, you're not um, talking about like, the structure of the DNA, but also about the proteins and maybe also the, the RNA? Absolutely.
2: Or? I think these are all building blocks of life. You know, RNA, DNA, small molecules. I think you know, there's a huge understanding of these metabolites Metabolites could play a very important role from release from the mitochondria all the way into the nucleus and regulating the pattern of gene expression, maybe involving a lot of neurological disorders. I think these are all building blocks and how they work together to build a structure as life. I think that's, that's the question. And putting value only on one saying that histone modification is central or metabolites are the central of the structure probably would not be a right way to go is that the combination of all of them. That gives you what we have, and misregulation of these activities is what causes
0: disease.
1: But uh, (laughs) when you uh, take all this into account, then it gets uh, very complicated very quickly, right? I mean, uh, looking at the structure.
2: Yeah. But that's why, you know, we've been at it for as as a community for over 60, 70 years, and we still have very little cure for cancer. It's complicated, Uh, it's not easy to understand. What's going on? I mean, I remember my graduate mentor, a guy named Rick Cummings, uh, this was his favorite line. It was, if the angel of Lord comes and gives you the book of life and you read it, you're not going to understand it. And we're trying to figure it out, right? Yeah. It's, it's very complicated. And I think little steps at a time, little building blocks. But I think the most important part, and this is what I preach a lot in my group, that we need to put out their building blocks that others can build upon. I think that's, that's the importance of science, providing those little Lego pieces yeah. and that goes in the right place and, and pulling the puzzle together.
1: So to finish off this interview, I have two more general questions. Uh, the first one being, did you at one point of your career face the situation that you have reached a dead end or did not know how to proceed to unravel the questions you wanted to answer? I mean, the, the stories you shared with us are all success stories, but is there maybe something that, where you hit the roadblock or something? That,
2: that, that's a great point. Do I have moments that I get down on myself and feel like, you know, it's not going anywhere almost every day, right? Everybody has that moment that's saying, this is not working for me. Things are not happening. You know, experiments are not, I mean, times that, you know, you do purifications after purification and not much might happen. And, you know, you feel like your career is over. Right. And I think the difference is that you got to love what you do. And you have to believe tomorrow is gonna to be a better day than today. And you have to believe that every day. And I give you case and point in here. So I provided this to this glory purification of ELL because Chris and I went and had a beer, right? So I'm in grad school, finished up, have a have a child, and started my postdoc. And I told my wife, I'm gonna give this thing about three years, and we'll see what happens within three years. So I purified. 34 activities. And I don't know how much you're familiar with protein purification. When you start with nuclear extract, you go into the cold room, you run the first column assay, second column assay, each purification is almost six months to a year worth of work. I worked day and night, did 34 purification. Failed, 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 failed. 35 was ELL, right? And that's, the activity that we saw that the rats were heat shocks without our knowledge, we never pointed it that way. And there was this new activity that, you know, really piqued my interest, like, what the heck is this? And I went after it. And going back to, you know, I'm this 27-year-old, 25-year-old postdoc working in the cold room, trying to purify this, you know, always went in my mind, you know, what if I don't get anything, right? And I, what am I gonna do with the PhD, you know? It's, and I always believed, Tomorrow is going to be a better day. You have to work. And, you know, 30 years out, I'm sitting here at my career and I have a bunch of people who work in the lab and most of the time they bring in data. It didn't work. I mean, if I have a dollar for every time it didn't work, I could fund my lab. (laughs) Right. (laughs) And I think is the problem solving part of it is that why didn't it work? and why mistake happen and i think learning from your mistakes and uh, building on those mistakes and not repeating mistakes i think those are just as valuable as purifying the greatest protein or getting you, know, you know nice gene cloned or whatever it may be but yeah do i do i get failure every damn day and uh, what do i do about it you know i sleep on it and um, and I believe tomorrow is going to be a better day. And, uh, and there's a lot of disappointment on the papers. I'll just give you a case on point, that paper that we submitted to Nature Genetics showing that the catalytic activity of TRR is not required for viability. I mean, if you would have read those reviews, I mean, my lab read it, it was very demoralizing. Right. The way the reviewer was talking to us and what we believe in the finding. You know, it's, it is what it is. K4 methylation is not required for viability. I don't care if the reviewer doesn't like it. Mm-hmm. And, and every once in a while, you end up with a smart editor saying that, you know, I, I believe in this data. This is, could be quite important. And we went ahead and published the paper. And later on, it took us about a year and a half, two years to figure out what's the mechanism. And we did that. But at that time, when, when the paper was being reviewed, it wasn't fun. But I believe in the work and I believe that tomorrow is going to be a better day. So,
1: Yeah. So in the last 38 minutes, we have taken a journey through your scientific career. Can you maybe give a short s- summary about your most important findings or something that <laughs> we might have missed in this interview, but you still want to share?
2: No, I think I told you about all the important findings is that, you know, I, I think we spent, uh, you know, a good bit of time. Trying to figure out why translocation of MLL to so many unrelated genes causes the same disease. And I think it wasn't known. We initially thought elongation was it. And 25 years later, we have shown that transcriptional elongation control is central for leukemic pathogenesis. And we were learning from the work of many other colleagues that elongation of transcription is central for cancer. And I think regulated of elongation, which by by proxy functions in the splicing factors, the splicing as well. These are central factors. And my, my wife was cleaning our garage day. Our kids are grown and gone. So she was trying to go through all the boxes. And she found the pink sheets that I had from my NIH reviews back when I started as an assistant professor. And my grant was rejected after rejected after rejected. She had like 10 or 15 of these pink sheets in there. And the most common criticism of my proposal is that the PI has not demonstrated that elongation has anything to do with anything. Right. And here is a talk about you know, failures. <laughs> <laughs> so so I'm, I'm, I'm keeping these. I'm actually kept all of these. So so and then, you know, 30 years back looking at it, I think, you know, I, I think what we have shown is that transcriptional elongation control is important and that regulation of epigenetic modification, or if you would. You know, regulation of gene expression is central in the process. But, you know, I, I, what lesson have I learned? My most famous speech for, uh, for graduation a speech that was given was given by Winston Churchill. And he got up and said, never give up, never give up, never give up. And he sat down. And I think there's so much truth into that.
1: And I think that's a good point to end this interview. Thank you, Ali, for your
0: time and for being on the show. Absolutely. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Epigenetics Podcast from Active Motif. We hope you enjoyed it. You can find all the mentioned references in the show notes. Please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast platform so you never miss an episode. We'd love to hear from you, so please send us your feedback on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, or via email at podcast at activemotif.com and we'll give you a shout-out in a future episode. For more great epigenetics content, check out the Active Motif blog at activemotif.com forward slash blog. Thanks for listening, and stay tuned.